my face hit the car and basically broke every bone in my face and knocked me unconscious and woke up in the hospital ultimately with tubes down my throat and I had broken my jaw so severely that it had to be wired shut and so I woke up not being able to, to even communicate other than with a piece of paper. I think a, a lot of clients that I've worked with over the years, it's this immediate feeling of helplessness. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me, of course, is my co-host, Lester Tate. Lester, how's it going this afternoon? Not not, not bad at all. You know, we're rolling out of winter into summertime. Uh, hopefully, we're all going to get vaccinated soon, you know, at some point. So uh, I feel like things are looking up. Maybe we'll even get jury trials. Uh, and I know that those uh, non-lawyer uh, listeners that we have are are sitting at home just waiting to get that jury trial summons in the mail so that they can go down and, and serve. But, uh, but uh, I'll certainly be happy when they start those back. Yeah, I can't wait to get vaccinated, although I'm way down on the list. Um, but I did watch a mock jury selection, virtual jury selection on Friday afternoon with uh, Judge Rachel Krause from Fulton County. Um, they were only able to do 12 jurors at a time and going back and forth to meeting rooms. So they've got some things to work out, but that's how they're going to try to handle jury selection, at least when they start back up. So looking forward to it. Maybe we see light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe so. Today, we are delighted to have with us Jason Lazarus. He is a lawyer and author of The Art of Settlement, A Lawyer's Guide to Regulatory Compliance When Resolving Catastrophic Claims. And we're going to talk about Jason's background and the book and and why he wrote the book. Let me uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Jason first. Jason Lazarus is the founder and chief executive officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy offers healthcare lien resolution, Medicare secondary payer compliance services, pooled trust services, settlement asset management services, and structured settlements. He is also a founding principal and president of Multi-Claimant Solutions, which offers lien resolution and MSP compliance services for mass torts. Lastly, he is the managing partner and founder of the Special Needs Law Firm, a Florida law firm that provides legal services related to public benefit preservation, liens, and Medicare secondary payer compliance. Prior to joining Synergy Team, Mr. Lazarus was the president of a national settlement planning firm. Before that, he spent 10 years assisting injury victims as a settlement planner. Prior to settling Starting his settlement planning practice, Mr. Lazarus practiced as a medical malpractice and workers' comp attorney, workers' compensation attorney in Orlando, Florida. 
Jason received his uh, BA from the University of Central Florida and his JD with high honors from Florida State University. He received his LLM in elder law with distinction from Stetson University College of Law. Jason is a Medicare set-aside consultant certified by the International Commission on Healthcare Certification. That is quite a list of qualifications. And Jason, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure to be with you guys today. Wow. Part of that, I, I, I just kept reading, but I didn't know what a lot of it meant. So we're going to dive deep and, and figure out some of this stuff uh, that seems pretty complicated to me. Um, Jason, uh, let's talk a little bit about this book that you've, you've authored and now published. First of all, congratulations on that. Um, I'm a, um, I would love to be able to write a book and get it published. So my hat's off to you for doing it because I know it's a hard, hard job. It only took me 20 years of <laughs> experience and knowledge to be able to write it. So, it, you know, I, the, the part of being a lawyer and writing was a part for me that always came pretty naturally. So I've always loved writing and uh, was encouraged uh, along the way to write a book. And it, it took me a while, but I finally, finally accomplished it. That's awesome. That's great. And you you dedicated your book uh, to all the trial lawyers who zealously represent personal injury victims. These caring men and women make the world a safer place for all of us. And I just read your dedication. So is this book written predominantly for personal injury lawyers? Yeah, you know, it is fairly technical. It, you know, an injury victim could read it and possibly get some, you know, basic understanding and Actually, my next my next book is going to be a guide for specifically injury victims. Just having spent the the twenty years in in um, you know advising people, I felt like that really is something that's lacking out there. Is something that sort of explains all these issues in more layman's terms because the book is really written more in legalese um, and you know for trial lawyers as a guide to help them navigate all these complex issues that have become um, kind of more at the forefront when these cases are being resolved than, you know, when I got started, uh, when I got started uh, in this area after um, leaving litigation practice, things were, were significantly less complex than they are today, I think. And so the, the purpose of the book really is to help lawyers issue spot, avoid potential malpractice, or even worse yet, you know, the Department of Justice coming after law firms, you know, which has become prevalent with Medicare. So it that really is is the point of the book is to to be that guide for trial lawyers to issue spot. I'd I'd like for you to share your personal story, if you don't mind, with our listeners uh, and how you have um, you know, a personal experience with exactly what we're talking about, dealing with injury settlements and, and the, the compliance part of it. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I uh, was involved in a pretty significant accident in 2016. I am an avid cyclist. I've been riding and racing since I was 13 years old, have raced in the junior national championships, raced in, in Europe and 
um, just been a lifelong passion of mine and sport that I love and was out riding my bike actually less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now and uh, was going to meet a group of cyclists that I meet every Tuesday and Thursday to ride with and was struck in a bicycle lane by a car uh, driver who was not paying attention and basically just turned right into me and slammed into the side of the car. I don't really remember anything from from the accident because my face hit the car and basically broke every bone in my face and um, you know knocked me unconscious and woke up in the hospital like many injury victims not knowing what the heck was going on and just you know um, ultimately with tubes down my throat and I had broken my jaw so severely that um, it had to be wired shut and so you know, woke up not being able to, to even communicate other than with a piece of paper. So, you know, I, like, like I think a, a lot of clients that I've worked with over the years, it's, you know, this immediate feeling of helplessness and, you know, being in the hospital where you have absolutely zero control and being a, a person who really loves to be in control of everything, uh, probably not, uh, not a great experience for most people that feel that way. So, you know, I, I experienced what every client that I've worked with experiences, which is that fear, um, not knowing what had happened and ultimately, you know, going through what happens after that, you know, having my lawyer visit me in the hospital to talk about, well, you know, what, what, you know, what are the options to pursue justice here? And, you know, as it turned out, the driver that hit me had de minimis coverage, which, you know, is is usually the case. Um, and thankfully, I had a lot of underinsured motorist coverage from multiple vehicles being stacked. And you know, for a lot of people, they don't understand the importance of that. For me, it became very important. You know, the guy who hit me had 10,000 in coverage. My medical bills alone were $380,000. I spent... Wow nine days in ICU and three weeks total in the hospital. So, you know, you, your bills pile up pretty quickly. So, you know, I, I, I talked to my lawyer about, okay, you know, what, and that was even before I knew what the coverage was that was available, but I knew that I'd been hit by, you know, a driver that was driving a pickup truck and, you know, likely it was not a situation where you've got a FedEx or some big defendant with a commercial policy. So, um, but, from there, you know, went through the entirety of, of the process, you know, meaning, you know, you start off with, with figuring out what the coverages that are available and going through what happened and then ultimately progressing through litigation, you know, being deposed multiple times, ultimately going to mediation. I actually did my own damages presentation because I felt like I could really connect with the adjuster who was there on behalf of my insurance company because, you know, they, 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 they were not willing to tender, which they really should have because, you know, it's a pretty, they, there wasn't a whole lot of argument on my ability side of it, but they tried to blame me somewhat for the accident too. And, Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. Of course uh, that, they did. That sounds like every uh, case Robin and I have ever, ever had, you know? 
Yeah. Yes. And, then, and then you get to learn immediately when you file a claim against your own carrier for UM that they are not your friend. No, yeah. <laughs> no, they were not my friend. They didn't tender, you know, and uh, obviously it, it, it wound up being a, a, you know, a fairly, fairly um, contentious because, you know, the idea of blaming me, obviously, I, I did not take too kindly to the, the, the issue was whether I had a, a light on the front of my bike and the kind of light I had on my, at the time was, has this little rubber band and it was a piece of plastic, this light, and it was attached to the front fork. The, the force of the accident actually snapped that fork in half. And so, you know, they, they were like, well, you know, we, we couldn't find the light. I was like, that light probably was smashed into a million pieces when it got smashed into the car. It's probably in the bed of the pickup truck. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that I had lights that were on the back of the bike too, which were flashing. So I had lights forward and backwards, which was my, you know, my normal operating mode was trying to be visible. But yeah, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the driver never saw me and the, there was an eyewitness who thankfully kind of came and helped me because, you know, I, I, I had knocked out a bunch of my teeth. So my mouth was filled with debris and blood and he actually cleared my airway. Um, the guy had been a medic in the military, was, was at a VA hospital that was literally a mile from where the accident occurred. But anyway, he he basically said that there was nothing I could do. There was nowhere for me to go. He was, you know, just turned right into my path. But in any event, you know, you just go through all. I went through every phase of of what I think most clients do, which is trying to grapple with an accident when you don't know what happened and blaming yourself and, you know, the the emotional side of it, which is very, very tough to deal with, um, you know, and, and it took me about a year to eat normally. So I went three months with my jaw wired shut. So I was, you know, taking my, my nutrients through a straw for three months. And even after that, it took a long while for all the dental work to, and the reconstruction to be done so I could eat normally again. So, it, you know, it impacts every aspect of your life. Well, e everything that uh, you have just told us about your uh, 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 incident there and your case is the kind of case Robin and I, I think both, you know, like to work on, you know, trying to get justice, you know, for somebody like you. And uh, you, you were talking about uh, the, your book was 20 years in the making. I was thinking, I've been practicing 34 years. And I think for about the first 14, I don't even think I knew what the word subrogation, you know, was. And now uh, I, I go and try to get justice for somebody like you. And then I hear, Oh, but what about the subrogation lien? And, you know, it's like uh, uh, fingers on a chalkboard uh, that uh, it's something that I have to deal with. So we do have a lot of non-lawyer listeners, I think, as well. So uh, could you tell us, first off, just what is a subrogation lien and how you got interested in this, this sort of subspecialty uh, of personal injury practice, if you will? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, in layman's terms, you know, it, great example is what happened with me. So, you know, my health insurance plan paid for all of my medical expenses in the hospital, which I said, you know, was, uh, you know, almost $400,000, uh, mostly because of that time in the ICU. But, you know, it's pretty easy to rack up those bills. And almost every in 
health insurance plan these days has language in it, contractual language that says if a third party causes injury to the person who is covered and the plan pays for your medical bills, that if there is a recovery, then they are entitled to reimbursement. And it's in first party, you know, policies, it's in, um, you know, it or pertains to first party, arguably, and third party claims. So, you know, mine was first party money. And there, there's some, you know, it, it's state to state. So there's some funky law that, that you know, you, you have to deal with when I was negotiating my lien, because I did my, my own personally. Um, there were some arguments with some state law aspects of it, even though it was an ERISA plan, um, because it was not self-funded and it was it was subject to our state recovery law. There was also just these nuances, so it gets incredibly complicated in terms of what that um, health plan is able to recover because it really is dependent upon whose law applies. Is it federal law? Is it state law? And that that really gets into this kind of tougher issue when you're dealing with ERISA. But then, you know, people are also covered by Medicare, Medicaid, uh, FEBA, which are um, government employees or it could be military plans. So you've got all these different types of plans that potentially have recovery rights. And and but folks don't realize, uh, I think, that aren't lawyers or maybe don't practice in this area. Uh, even, I've had a lot of lawyers, even like you, that I've represented that don't realize that the evidentiary rules, when you go try a case, the jury never knows whether or not you had health insurance or not. And the reason for that is the defendants don't want the jury to know whether or not they've got liability insurance that's going to pay for the pay for uh, whatever verdict they render because they're afraid, well, if you know they've got insurance, you know, you, you, that's what you took the premium for. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's very complicated, I think, sometimes to go into court and not be able to uh, tell the jury that, uh, yeah, we did have health insurance and now we're going to have to pay it back uh, or some portion of that back at the end of, at the end of this case. Do you think as we've, you know, as we, and, and, and like I said, subrogation has become more and more uh, prevalent, I think, in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, do, you th do you think that juries should know uh, who paid your medical bills? And if the defendant has insurance and if they're going to have to be going to have to be paid back, because it's, it seems to me that at some level, it sort of puts the plaintiff at a disadvantage because, you know, a lot of, I mean, I've talked to jurors after cases I've tried and they said, well, we figured he had health insurance. He only had to pay 20% of that, you know, after he covered his deductible. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it's a tough issue because I see the perspective of the defense, but my heart lies with the plaintiffs. So, you know, from my standpoint, I, I, I think it's just really tough the way it's positioned with that not being disclosed because people don't realize, you know, what kind of expense potentially is out there if somebody, I mean, and it really becomes problematic in, you know, where you've got a catastrophic type injury. I mean, as bad as my own personal injury was, you know, I wasn't paralyzed. I wasn't severely brain injured. 
you know, and those cases are cases where, you know, you're talking millions of dollars that could be spent when that person gets injured and then all these dollars into the future too. And, you know, it's unfortunate that sometimes they're, you know, people perceive cases as windfalls even. And that's one of the things that frustrates me is, you know, somebody says, oh, they got a million dollars. Well, their life care plan says they need $50 million. So yeah, they got a million dollars, but that's not going to go very far. So it's, you know, there's all these things that, that there's misconceptions and people just don't understand about this whole area. Yeah. I think, I think one thing is that uh, the the rate, you know, a lot of people would say, well, yeah, they, you know, they ought to know what the, what the insurance is. Why was it ever not admissible? And one of the reasons that, that you ought to be able to get the money for your medical bills that your health insurer paid is because you paid the premium for that all the time. And, uh, you know, if you get, uh, if, you know, if you're, if you're a reckless driver and you hit somebody that uh, happens to be wealthy enough uh, to have insurance, you know, do you get a break? Uh, as opposed to if you ran over the, the the poor person who doesn't have health insurance and doesn't have the ability, the, the ability to pay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, it, you know, our, our system is, is certainly not perfect. And there's a lot of, a lot of, I think things that, you know, unfortunately are part of that system, this being one of those things. And, you know, you gotta, you gotta ultimately deal with what you got to deal with that are, that are the bad parts of our system, I suppose. And, you know, in your personal example, you mentioned that you fortunately had a great deal of uh, uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage, which we call UM uh, here in Georgia. Um, and we, we started off talking about ERISA. We're going to come back to Medicaid and Medicare and all these other types of liens, but ERISA, um, is employer-based health insurance, right? Yep. Um, and it it the the claim for subrogation is if you recover money from a third party. And I've been able to get rid of those um, I call them collection agencies, subrogation agencies, collection agencies on the basis of UM saying, well, that's not a third party. That's where you paid your own premiums to, smartly to have that coverage in case something happened to you. And I've been successful with that on a lot of claims up until recently. And I had a Cigna policy that I think is probably the worst policy ever written for individuals. Um, and it even mentioned uninsured motorist coverage. So tell, tell us about that. How, how is it fair for an insurance company to write a policy that basically cuts off any uh, ability um, for the plaintiff to keep his money? Um, and, it, and there's no negotiation over that language. The, 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 the employee doesn't get to negotiate the language of the contract. They're stuck. Um, to me, it just doesn't seem fair. But this whole, honestly, the whole scheme of ERISA doesn't seem fair. ERISA is completely unfair. Like you said, it's a contract of adhesion. We none of us get to you know negotiate the terms of our insurance coverage, and you know it's it's foisted upon us. And what's made it worse is the United States Supreme Court has really ruled in favor of of 
the ERISA plans nearly every time cases get in front of it. And, you know, to the, 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 the idea of ERISA was really to protect employees. It was never meant to be what it, what I think it's become, which is really, you know, something that protects these ERISA health plans, recovery rights. And it, it, it is truly unfair and unfortunate. But, you know, what it is, is, you know, these ERISA plans are being told by the United States Supreme Court in their rulings that whatever your plan says, you can do. So write your, I mean, basically what the Supreme Court says, write your your plan as airtight as you possibly can, and we're going to uphold your rights of recovery. It's, you know, it's funny because the the McCutcheon case, which is cited by a lot of these ERISA recovery contractors, which is sort of what I think you were talking about, these these companies that are are hired by ERISA plans to pursue recovery when there's a, a third party case, they, they cite the McCutcheon case. And the irony of McCutcheon was that when that case went back down after the Supreme Court's decision, the, the master plan document, which is what governs, had nothing in it. Nobody had even looked to see whether that plan language had subrogation rights. And ironically, it didn't. But you know, the message that got passed down by the ruling is, hey, if your if your plan disavows made whole, then you know, great. If it disavows common fund, great. You know, that's that's the unfortunate reality of where we are today because of the way the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled in favor of these ERISA plans. And I, I, I guess we should. Uh, should count ourselves fortunate that nobody's written uh, that they get treble damages uh, back from the insured in the in the the group plan. Uh, yeah. I, I, in, in talking about your biography a little bit, you uh, understand you did some workers' comp uh, uh, work at 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 some point, and I've I've done a little bit a little bit and a lot of that you know over the years, including some uh, some subrogation work from time. And Georgia did not have a uh, subrogation statute for a long time. Nobody wanted to put it back in. They got a lot of pressure for the insurers, uh, insurers, and so they put it back in, and they put in a made whole doctrine, uh, which I'm 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 sure you're familiar. With. I don't know if does Florida have a made whole doctrine for workers' compensation? Yeah, it's it's called the uh, Manfredo formula, so it's a little bit different, but it it, it that same idea. In, in Georgia, in Georgia, the made whole doctrine basically means, and uh, and, and uh, there's a case called Garto versus Oglethorpe Power in Georgia uh, that essentially says, ensure you're not getting any money back. And uh, I'm very familiar with that case because I actually represented Oglethorpe Power in that case uh, many years ago when I did some uh, did some defense work, uh, but. Uh, uh, t- tell our audience just a little bit about what made whole uh, made whole is and how that how that comes into play in some of these. I mean, really, the the idea behind it is that, and I, I deal with this with Medicaid liens in Florida because it's really sort of the underpinnings of the Allborn decision as well as this idea if if you're if you're not made whole, then whoever is attempting to recover this whatever plan should not get 100% of their dollars back because if you're getting 
10 cents on every dollar that should have been recovered. So, you know, your your damages are a million dollars, but you're only recovering a hundred grand. Well, you're only recovering 10% of your total damages. So it's this idea that there, there should not be a recovery 100% when uh, by the, the plan when the underlying injury claimant is only recovering 10 cents on the dollar. And that's, you know, that to me, that's, that's, the, that's fair, that's equity, that's, that's the way it should be because it doesn't make sense for, you know, an ERISA plan to get all their dollars back and ultimately the claimant be left with nothing. That was sort of the argument in the McCutcheon case, which was basically, hey, if, if this is allowed, you know, Mr. McCutcheon's going to basically get nothing here. And, you know, that's, that's not, that's not what justice is about, at least in my opinion. I mean, I'm sure the ERISA plans would, would say, yeah, that's exactly what uh, justice is about because, you know, for them it's great, but for the injury victim, that's, that's a pretty horrific situation to find yourself in when, you know, you've been injured and you're making a limited recovery why should the health plan get, you know, hundred cents on the dollar when you've taken 10 cents on the dollar? And, and you mentioned earlier disavowing the made whole doctrine. That's where these companies have come in after a Supreme court opinion like McCutcheon and re they've rewritten their policies. And it says something like, we're going to recover from the first dollar, hundred percent of what we paid out, e even if you're not made whole which again goes back to my point about being unfair. I don't know what we can do about it. Probably nothing, but <laughs> it bothers me. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately it's become, you know, the law of the land with, with the way the Supreme court's ruled and, and basically the message that they've sent to these plans is rewrite your plans. And that's what they've done. And, you know, then these, recovery contractors are, you know, pointing to McCutcheon saying, hey, we're entitled to 100%. And, yeah, you know, look, there, there are still levers and there's leverage to, to be utilized in the negotiation and resolution of those, those ERISA plans. Um, but, you know, sometimes the language is such that you really have zero arguments. And, you know, then it becomes a question of can you can you get to the actual, um, you know, employer? Sometimes there is some leverage there, depending on that situation. So, but it's unfortunate. It's 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 a it's a game that has been now slanted in in so much favor of the ERISA plans that it it makes the negotiations really tough for trial lawyers. And that's where, you know, oftentimes we get asked to see what we can do because my company, you know, has that area of expertise and knows the ins and outs of it. Cause we've, we've basically hired people away from those recovery contractors to work on behalf of injury victims, because, you know, you, you look at a company, um, like uh, the one that we've hired a lot of people from, and uh, you know they, they have thousands of people that are you know trying to recover every day on behalf of ERISA plans. I mean, what our side is is you know it's the David and Goliath. I mean, you know, there's so few companies that do what we do on behalf of plaintiffs, and the ones that we're fighting against are 
you know, they're, they're, they're big entities that they, they know what they're doing and, you know, they, they are, are good at what they do. I want to come back to, you mentioned the Auburn, Auburn decision. I want to come back to that. That is that Medicaid or Medicare? That's Medicaid. Medicaid. So we're going to talk about that in a minute, but you took, you, you mentioned a little bit about what your company Synergy Settlements does. Tell, tell us how does Synergy get involved and, and at what stage of the litigation would you be hired and, and what, what do you do? Well, so it varies, you know, based on what we're being asked to do. And sometimes we're asked to do everything that we do. You know, it depends on the case, obviously, but we do healthcare lien resolution, which is ERISA, Medicare, Medicaid, FIBA, military, uh, hospitals. You know, we, we actually have kind of a whole specialization in assisting trial lawyers with figuring out hospital billing, because that's another area that's exceedingly complex and trialers are at a disadvantage because they don't have all the billing information. Um, but so we, we basically assist with all facets of lien resolution. We also deal with Medicare secondary payer compliance. So the Medicare secondary payer act dealing with whether it's conditional payments could be, um, which are, are payments that Medicare makes prior to the date of settlement could be Medicare Advantage plans, which are um, uh, Part C plans that people can elect into where they're private insurers, but they're funded by Medicare dollars. And they have a very um, aggressive um, recovery stance now these days and have really used the Medicare Secondary Payer Act to their advantage to, to make things harder on trial lawyers. So we deal with those issues. And then we also deal with Medicare set-asides, which are Medicare futures and dealing with whether clients need to set aside a portion of their recovery to pay for future Medicare covered expenses. And then the, re the remainder of what we do is sort of planning, helping injury victims when, and mostly these are catastrophic claims where they need help with the financial aspect of managing the recovery or they need advice on government benefit preservation, keeping Medicaid and SSI intact um, and helping uh, navigate all those complexities. So it does vary when we get hired. Sometimes it's early on if it's a case where they need some help sorting out the issues or there's lien resolution issues that they wanna get ahead of. There, there are some tactics sometimes with different plans, ERISA plans, are, there are some tactics in advance of a settlement that can be implemented. So it does vary. You know, our, our settlement services are typically triggered more close in time to when the case is actually being settled. So it does, it does sort of depend on what we're being hired to assist with. But there are there are some some really complex cases where we do every aspect of what I've just described, and and you know those are cases where I think we really have this opportunity to to make a difference, and it's one of the things I love about what we do, and, and I talk about this with our people, and actually every single person that joins our company, I give them my accent as an example and explain the impact it had, and describe to them the importance of who we serve and why we serve that, you know, that mission of helping improve lives is such a 
great opportunity and a privilege that we have to to make a difference for people that need that help because you know when you've been through a significant injury it's it's a low point i mean it's it's certainly a very tough thing to to deal with and so helping people at that time is is really an opportunity that i i love that we we get to to be a part of that you mentioned also a um structured settlements and for our listeners who may not know what that is can you help us out and explain what a structured settlement it is and when is it something that you would recommend yeah well i can tell you i'm i'm a structured settlement recipient i did that with part of my personal injury settlement all it is 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 it's an agreement to have part of the settlement paid out in future periodic payments by a life insurance company so instead of the defendant cutting a check for the amount uh, of the settlement, a portion of it can be put into a structured settlement with a life insurance company that simply makes future periodic payments, could be over a certain period of time or it could be for life. But basically it's, it's a way to take settlement proceeds and invest those proceeds on uh, a tax-free basis because there's an exemption in the Internal Revenue Code when you do this as part of a personal injury settlement. And the reason that's in the code is because it's it's the government encouraging people to protect their recoveries because you get that tax break, but you also get some extra protection against spending money too quickly or spending money unwisely. Um, but also like in my state, for example, we've got a, a specific statute on point that protects uh, these types of products from legal process at all. So it protects it from judgments, creditors. Um, so there's some asset protection reasons why it's done, but really at its essence, it's just a way to protect and make sure that that recovery, particularly in catastrophic cases, that you don't outlive the recovery because it can be turned into that stream of income over life. So for people that have quantifiable needs, they have medical, future medical needs, or if they need, um, you know, a vehicle, a handicapped vehicle every five years, it can be designed where there's lump sum payments to provide for different needs. So usually it's, it's either replacing income that will no longer be possible because that person can't work or designed to provide for future medical needs. Yeah, I've got a case right now where um, a wrongful death of the father and he left two daughters. And so we're doing structured settlements for those two daughters really to pay for their college. And um, so so we know they're going to be taken care of in the future when they are going to college, it'll be paid for. Um, they'll probably be able to get a car and some other things, a computer, whatever they may need for education. If they're not gonna, if they're not gonna spend, if they're at a point in their life where they're not spending a lot of money, uh, then they can, they can let it grow uh, tax free. And by the time they need it, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of there. Uh, there for them. Uh, and I, you know, it's one of the things too, I always tell my clients about, you know, the structured settlement, you know, you can, you could take that, you could get that money in cash and put it in exactly the same investments that the structured settlement company is putting it in. 
it would earn exactly the same amount of money and you would get less back because you were the one who invested it and it's taxable to you and it's not uh, it's not uh, not taxable if it if it if it comes as part of the structured settlement well and no ongoing expenses annually like a lot of other investment vehicles so i mean there there's a lot of great reasons i mean for miners it makes a ton of sense because it avoids guardianship which you know with a guardianship they're going to get 100 percent of what that what's sitting in that guardianship at age 18 and i i've got three kids i would not want you know one of my kids to get a huge sum of money when they turned age 18 because i know none of them would have been responsible enough to to handle that and that's sort of the idea for minors is to do that but for for nearly everyone and that's why i did it for myself i mean because it's tax-free because there's no there's no ongoing expense with managing the recovery it just is it's a conservative investment vehicle but it's a very good conservative investment vehicle uh talk talk to us a little bit about some other uh ways or products to protect your settlement, like a Medicare set aside and explain what that is or a special needs trust. Other these, these are kind of exotic things when people hear about them, even though I'm sure you deal with them every day. Um, but my guess is a lot of folks aren't familiar with them and don't even know they exist. Yeah. And I, there, there's also a lot of confusion between different government benefit programs. One of the things that I really wanted to do in the book was really present those issues so lawyers could issue spot and understand, hey, are, are we dealing with Medicare and SSDI? Or are we dealing with Medicaid and SSI? They sound very similar. And, you know, some some people go, well, I get Social Security benefits and I have to dive in. Okay, well, what do you get? How much do you get? What does your award letter say? Because there's very different issues presented by these types of government benefits, which is what in turn makes the settlement planning more complicated. So if a client is Medicare eligible, meaning that they've they've become either disabled, which triggered early um, Medicare eligibility or they're Medicare eligible by virtue of age, then that implicates the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, which, you know, is it's a that's a, a long topic. I spent five or six chapters, I think, in the book talking about that. But the bottom line of it is, is that the the idea is that the Medicare Secondary Payer Act says Medicare is supposed to be secondary to all forms of insurance. And if you get a recovery, Medicare is not supposed to pay for your medical expenses related to your injury care. And so the idea of Medicare set-asides is a concept that Medicare came up with to say, okay, you can set aside a portion of your settlement to protect the Medicare trust fund and comply with the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. And then basically it acts like a deductible where you're paying your Medicare covered expenses up to a certain dollar figure after which Medicare is responsible. And it's only related to the injuries. And that's completely different, but gets confused sometimes with special needs trusts. Special needs trusts are for, for people that are receiving needs-based benefits, which are Medicaid and SSI. Those benefits are impacted by settlements, can be as low as $2,000 because they have asset and income caps. And the asset cap for SSI-related programs 
is $2,000 if you're single, $3,000 if you're married. So it's a very small amount of money that can cause ineligibility. So a special needs trust is a trust that can be utilized by people that are disabled and receiving those benefits to shield the recovery from being countable. So for cases where we are working with a Medicaid or SSI recipient, these trusts are used to maintain eligibility because as I said, you could have somebody that recovers a million dollars, we can have them still have their Medicaid coverage even though they're getting that million dollars because their future care is $50 million and that million dollars isn't going to cover all their care. They need Medicaid to pay for that 49 other million dollars that needs to be paid for. And really it's the 50 million because Medicaid would continue to pay the special needs trust. Is there to supplement, improve that person's quality of life so that when they get a recovery, that money can be used to make things better and enhance what the government assistance provides because Medicaid is really basic. It's not going to cover everything. So that's where these monies you know, supplement and make the life better for that injury victim. But it, all those mechanisms provide a framework for taking care of that injury victim and making sure that their, you know, their rights are protected and it gives a framework for managing the recovery. And a lot of times they're paired with structured settlements too, because it'll lower the overall expense of administering that trust. So there's, there's, there's a lot of things that can be done for, from the planning aspect, and it's driven by what that person's situation is. And that's why it's so important really to understand what that person's situation is to make sure that the plan is the right one for their recovery. Do you deal with, um, with uh, I'll say some of the uh, less likely ones maybe to pop up. And I, I'm specifically thinking about like VA liens. You know, I had a case one time where uh, had a VA lien in it and, and it was for a million dollars. And I essentially ended up trying that medical malpractice case because I couldn't resolve the lien in conjunction, you know, with the, with the settlement. And, uh, you know, they had uh, U.S. assistant U.S. attorneys calling me about every other day about it. And, uh, everything else. And there was just no way, you know, with a million dollars in special damages and $2 million in policy limits, you know, I, I felt like I didn't have any choice, but to, you know, step into the batter's box and, and, and see if I could hit a home run. And I, I didn't, uh, by the way, but, uh, but it was just a really, uh, you know, of, of all, all the lean experiences I've had, that was one of the most, uh, frustrating ones to me. Yeah, the military stuff can be a little bit challenging. And, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but, you know, some of the branches will try to get you to sign a letter saying that you're not going to take a fee. And I mean, it's it's interesting uh, that you're basically working for the government, that you're not going to take a fee on the portion of their recovery, basically, um, which we tell lawyers they should not sign that agreement. Um but, you know, they, it, it does bother me that you have to tell a lawyer not to sign that agreement. Yeah, it's right. it, it's kind of crazy. But no, I mean, you know, the military stuff it, and I write about in the book, there's just different different laws that apply depending on what type of uh, lien it is. But there are ways to reduce those liens. And sometimes it's getting to the right person in the government, too, or the right 
person in that branch of the military. Um, so it's, it is a little bit more of a, you know, hand to hand combat with those because it is a little bit different depending on which branch you're dealing with or which plan you're dealing with, whether it's VA, campus, TRICARE. So it's definitely a specialization, but we have people that within our lean resolution team that specialize in these different areas. So they, they kind of get used to dealing with the nuances of this stuff. And that's what makes it tough for trial lawyers is, I mean, you're not dealing with that every day. So it's like, you know, Medicare, you, you, you could sit on the phone all day long with Medicare. Uh, but, you know, you guys, you, you've got the next injury victim to, to help. So you know, that's part of where we come in to help trial lawyers to make sure that, you know, you're not getting bogged down in some of this stuff, which is really a subspecialty. It's an area that, you know, two mistakes can be made if you really don't understand the nuances and all this. And I mean, we've talked about just several different areas that are, you know, you could write a book on the entirety uh, of just that one area instead of kind of an overview, which is really what my book is of a lot of different areas that are fairly complex. Talking about that VA lien, uh, where they want you to sign, they want the plaintiff's attorney to sign a letter saying we're not going to take a fee for what we recover for you. That irritates me to no end. But like you said, Lester, it also irritates me when they're calling you every other day and they say, I'd like to have a status of the case. And I, I feel like saying, okay, then go down to the courthouse and check it out. It's right there. You can go see. But but they're too cheap or lazy or something to do any of that. And I feel I like have, saying, I don't work for you, so I'm not going to do that for you. I, f I feel compelled to tell the story of, of one of the nastiest things I've ever done to another lawyer who was a, a ERISA subrogation lawyer. And uh, we had a client who had had he wasn't on a bicycle, but got hit by a train. So he had very similar issue, you know, very, very similar medical bills, whatnot, and minimum limits, $25,000 in Georgia. He, he, now I take it back. He didn't get hit by a train. It was a head on, but he worked for the railroad. So the railroad had an ERISA, had an ERISA policy. And so they have this lawyer uh, out of Tennessee someplace, and he's just hounding us. And finally he filed suit in federal court before we ever sued the claim trying to get us directed to sign the claim over to him, to, to, to his client. So we fought it and we lost and we filed an appeal to the 11th Circuit. It was pretty clear we were going to lose. But it was coming up on two years, the statute of limitation, you know, here in Georgia. So my partner and I decided that we would dismiss our appeal, sign the assignment and mail it to him uh, like on Wednesday before the statute of limitations ran on the following Monday. So that's exactly what we did. He blew the statute of limitations with the assigned claim. We write them a nasty letter saying, guess what? We're going to sue you. And, uh, and his, uh, uh, his name disappeared from the firm website and we got the whole uh, $25,000 such as it was. And I, I didn't really feel a bit bad about doing that, you know? <laughs> But that, I mean, that's, that's what's aggravating about these, you know, subrogation entities and, you know, all of this is that, you know, you guys as trial lawyers are 
being asked to work for them basically with their hands out. And then, you know, ultimately you've got to deal with them with their hands out at the end of the case, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's an unfair system because it is slanted oftentimes in their favor because of the way the law is. And there's nobody to lobby for changing that because I I mean, you know, even though you practice, you know, personal injury law and was around this, I bet you didn't think you were going to get hit, you know, the, you know, boy, I better get this, I better get this uh, uh, subrogation thing straightened out. Cause if I get hit on my bike, you know, I'm going to have a problem and nobody ever thinks they're going to be in that position, but the, the insurance carriers and the, the, the ERISA policy folks, they're in it all the time and they have greased the skids with, uh, with, uh, uh, with Congress and with legislative bodies to make sure that they always come out on top. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, the, the problem is too, is it's not just ERISA, it's, it's the government, it's, it's other plans. I mean, it's just, trying to figure out how you could effectively make sure that no matter what, you know, injury victims are protected. It, it, it certainly would be a, a tough task, but you know, too, like I never, I never looked at what our policy language said in our plan, because like I said, you don't, I don't, I wasn't thinking in those terms, you know, I mean, even, and, and this was what was frustrating with my, my own ERISA plan had a provision in it that said, that my dental treatment had to be completed within one year of the accident or they would not cover it. So they covered dental injuries related to trauma, but only if, and my, it was physically impossible for it to be done within that time frame. You know, my doctor said so. Well, you know, I talked to a buddy who's an ERISA lawyer and guru, and he's like, if that's what the policy says, he's like, you're not going to win that fight. Well, I, I, you know, uh, also, you know, the the, the way uh, if, if you've had any uh, dental cases or experience with the dental stuff, you know, it takes so long, I'm sure, you know, to, you know, to get like an implant to get the, you know, to, you know, it's a, it's a six, eight month process, even for like a single tooth, much less, yeah. you know, when it's more than that. So, yeah, mine was seven teeth. And, you know, on top of that, I had to go into braces and they had to move things around before they could do the dental implant work. So that's why it was physically impossible. And, and I've lost a bunch of bone because when you have traumatic teeth loss like that, it, it takes part of the bone with it when it gets knocked out. So they had to, they had to go in and do, you know, some work in there to get something to where they could put the implant into. But so it, it, it was physically impossible to do within that one year. Jason, I said that I wanted to come back to Auburn uh, and so let's this really love, I want to circle back on that for a second. And that deals with a Medicaid lien. We've talked a little bit about Medicare and Medicaid liens, which are actual liens that they can put on a settlement, file against your settlement proceeds. As opposed, I distinguish those compared to just claims of subrogation by an insurance carrier. Um, but in Auburn, and it was uh, the name of the case was Arkansas Department of Health and Human Service versus Auburn United States Supreme Court case back in 2006. What, the way I understand that case is it, it said a, a, a plaintiff's attorney attempted to structure the settlement so as uh, to limit the amount of money going toward medical expenses and then saying, oh, there's not much recovery for medical expenses, so you can only go against 
how much we put toward medical expenses and everything else we put toward pain and suffering, you don't have a right to go against. Is, is that is that right? Or can you explain that a little bit? No, actually, in, in that case, what happened was the party stipulated as to a percentage of recovery that was allocated to past medical expenses and so sort of created this default formula which is you know similar to um you know this idea of made whole and the u.s supreme court was asked to look at the state recovery statute because i think that statute um at the time basically resulted in either no reduction of the lien no matter what or I, I can't recall, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at it, but in any event, it, and, and the, the, the thing with Medicaid is that every state has its own third party liability recovery statutes and they vary. For example, in my home state in Florida, the law says that Medicaid can take up to half of the client's net proceeds up to the full amount of their lien after a 25% fee, no matter what the lawyer really charges, and costs. So what the Supreme Court was asked to do in, in the Allborn case was look at Arkansas statute and determine whether that was um, proper because there is federal statute that basically federal statutes that limit uh, the ability to Medicaid's ability to attach to a Medicaid recipient's estate. It's anti-lien laws. Um, and so there's there's some tension in the federal law that relates to that specific area. And the Supreme Court in the Allborn case ruled in favor of Heidi Allborn that Medicaid was limited in their recovery. The case was a little unclear because the 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 holding, which if you read between the lines, was that Medicaid could only recover from the, the past medical expense portion that was allocable after you applied this sort of ratio. Um, and in case law has developed now kind of defining that, for example, in my home state to say that it is limited just past medical expenses that Florida Medicaid can recover. And, and I actually, through my law firm, litigate these, these issues at the Division of Administrative Hearings in Florida. We've got a very specific process, but it varies state to state. But in any state, this idea of that the Medicaid uh, agency is limited in their recovery is the underpinnings of that Allborn decision. And there's a subsequent decision, WAS or WOES, depending on how you want to um, pronounce it, which came out of the North Carolina statute, which actually is kind of similar to the Florida statute. I, I still believe the Florida statute violates the 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 holding of Allborn, but you know, be that as it may, nobody's nobody's gotten it to the U.S. Supreme Court yet. Uh, although there is a case in the Eleventh Circuit that might make it up there. Um, but in any event, it the the Medicaid stuff is driven a bit by state law because it is state to state with the third party liability statute. So the Allborn decision is one that you can use no matter what state you're in to argue that that Medicaid agency is limited in its recovery based on that that formula and it gives you kind of that framework of how to how to analyze it that that i guess that was my question is allborn still alive and still are we still allowed to is it still usable to to allocate expenses that sort of thing 
Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was reaffirmed by that case woes, which I think was 2013. Some, so, I mean, the, the Supreme court had another crack at saying, Hey, we, we made a mistake in Allborn and reaffirmed it. And so, I mean, it, it is good law and it's, you know, in, in a lot of States, it's, they're fairly easy to negotiate and resolve my home state Medicaid has contracted with a third party recovery agent and they are, you know, it's a, it's a massive government contract that this, this group has, and they're a national, you know, recovery vendor that everybody would know if I, if I said their name, but they're, you know, that they force you to litigate this issue. You have to get an order allocating for them to reduce the Medicaid lien. Otherwise they tell you it's the statute and you're stuck with the reduction formula in the statute, which in a lot of cases leaves you with no choice because it results in no reduction at all. So it depends, you know, state to state what's going on, you know, has that Medicaid agency hired a third party vendor like Florida has done and they're just difficult to deal with because they make money. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is a lot of lawyers don't want to have to go through that process of having a like a little mini trial to get a, a lien reduction, which is basically what you got to do now in Florida, which is ridiculous. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say that's very efficient when you're kind of forced to do it like that when you could just settle it. And by, by the way, I do want to point out that Auburn is A H L. Uh, B-O-R-N, not Auburn like the college and football team uh, in uh, South Alabama. For those yep. who might go looking for that decision. Yep. Yeah. Yep, exactly. We'll and WAS is W-O-S. So okay. that's that's the other Supreme Court decision that affirmed Auburn. Lester, we'll try to put up those opinions on our yeah. our website. Yeah. And then our listeners can go to it. And, and uh We'll also put up some information about Jason on our website. Um, and Jason, tell tell our listeners where they can get your book, The Art of Settlement. So it's it's on Amazon. So uh, you can you can find it by just searching uh, Art of Settlement at Amazon. And all the proceeds from the sale of the book is actually going to a charity. So it's not something that uh, I'm I'm trying to uh, make money off of myself. It really was, you know, with the idea of of helping to educate and be a useful guide for trial lawyers while doing some, some good in my local community. That's awesome. It's a, and it's a, and it's an out, it's outstanding for uh, those of us who practice because it's uh it's, it's a very complicated uh, area of the law. It's an area of the law that uh, uh, a lot of us don't want to delve in, particularly at the end of the case, after you've, you've fought over, you've fought over, service being proper you fought over discovery you fought over uh trying the case or 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 whatever you've gotten to a settlement and then uh there's there's somebody with their hand out you know yeah and that's yeah. when you call synergy i guess and say yeah. take it away do your thing yep exactly you, you guys are you guys are doing the sales pitch for me i don't have to do it thank you but you know i mean you guys you guys do uh, a great service and what you're doing is is incredible work that's helping people find a sense of justice after they've been you know wronged it's it's 
and the idea that you should be then, you know, working on behalf of some of these recovery <laughs> vendors is just, it just tortured. It's tortured. You mentioned justice, and uh, we always ask our guests, Jason, what is your definition of justice or your notion? And especially since you've been through a major, major catastrophic injury yourself, my guess is you've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's that that opportunity to to be heard in, you know, whether it's in a courtroom or, you know, in my case, we didn't get there. It was it was in a mediation, being able to sit across the table from a person that, you know, made a made a you know mistake. Whether it was, I don't think it was intentional or not, but that changed my life. And uh, you know, being able to explain how it impacted me. And going through that whole process, I, I didn't realize it until after once we settled that there was there was you know catharsis that comes with that because it it gives you that opportunity to be heard and you know being able to get um, you know the that sense of closure on it I think is is important part of of justice whether it's you know, you've been wronged in, in the civil sense or in the criminal sense, it's that opportunity to get, to get that redress, um, whatever it might be. All right. Well, thank you for, thank you for being with us today, uh, Jason, and for uh, telling us about, uh, about this book. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Just to, re pleasure. to remind our listeners, we've been talking with Jason Lazarus. He is the CEO and founder of Synergy Settlement Services. He's the author of the book, The Art of Settlement, that you can get on Amazon. And uh, what's the website, Jason, for Synergy? It's SynergySettlements.com. Okay, there you go. So you can get in touch with Jason that way as well. Thanks again, Jason. It's been a great hour with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Okay, Lester, what do you have for our listeners of something really fun and interesting that happened law-related in the news today? Well, week? you know, uh, every every person who owns a computer or electronic uh, device now knows about the lawyer who uh, appeared in a hearing uh, with the cat filter on and told the judge, I'm really not a cat. Uh, which was sort of priceless. <laughs> Others have read stories uh, that uh, uh, had lawyers that were attending uh, proceedings uh, shirtless or clients that were logging on in bikinis by the pool, uh, uh, that kind of thing. But the New York Times uh, yesterday uh, from today that we're taping had the one that I think actually takes the cake. And it is about a surgeon in uh California, who had to appear on a traffic charge in Sacramento Superior Court last Thursday. Um, and so when he signed on via, via Zoom or uh, whatever device they were using, uh, they said, hello, Mr. Green, how are you available? And there was Dr. Green wearing a surgical mask and a cap, and he appeared in a virtual square with operating room lighting fixtures visible behind him. And the clerk said, it kind of looks like you're in an operating room right now. And he said, I am, sir. 
yes, I'm in an operating room right now. I'm available for trial. Go right ahead. Uh, the clerk advised Dr. Green that the hearing would be reported uh, by the local newspaper and would be live streamed. Uh, after Dr. Green was sworn in, you know, the judge uh, comes on and he says, unless I'm mistaken, I'm seeing that the defendants in the middle of an operating room appearing to be actively engaged in providing services to a patient. Is that correct, Mr. Green or Dr. Green? And he said that it was. So uh, in the middle of his surgery, Dr. Green apparently decided to appear for his uh, uh, Zoom court trial. The judge very wisely, I thought, says, I don't feel comfortable for the welfare of a patient if you're in the process of operating uh, that, that I would put on a trial, notwithstanding the fact that the officer is here today. And so he continued the case. And uh, I, I, I'm just speechless about that. <laughs> I'm just absolutely, oh, man. you know, speechless about that. And uh, I can't imagine, uh, I, you know, how could you? How could you do that? How could you do it for your patient? Um, and, you know, it's a reminder of us, too, I think about the importance of, of, of a courtroom, you know, and about the importance of courthouses, which are, uh, you know, frequently likened to uh, churches, synagogues, mosques, you know, places where things that are very important go on and that need to be approached with some level of solemnity, dignity, uh, respect. And respect. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I were, uh, yeah, it's probably also an indication of, you know, there's no indication that Dr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Green had counsel, uh, when he did this. So, uh, it's also an indication of the, uh, old, uh, saw that, uh, you know, uh, someone who represents themselves has a fool for a client. So I hope he gets counsel before he goes back. I think about the patient when that patient discovers it was his surgery or her surgery, because, you know, that patient is going to figure that out. Look at the date of when it happened and realize this surgeon was going to operate on him or her and do a traffic court hearing over Zoom at the same time. You know, he didn't sign an informed consent that said uh, you consent to my doing a traffic court hearing over Zoom while I operate on you. Um, and I hope the surgery went well. I hope that patient's okay. Um, but man, I sure would be pretty upset at my doctor. I, 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 like I said, I'm just, I'm just speechless about that. <laughs> you know, can, can you imagine representing the doctor, you know, and, and going into the courtroom and while a witness is on the stand, you're having your virtual, you know, medical appointment with another doctor someplace. I mean, you know, I don't think they'd be too happy. Uh, with you uh, there at council table. No, and I understand that the uh, California Medical Board is investigating, but I don't put I don't put a ton of credence in that, or, right. or hope that that's right. going to come out. Right. Well, so what have you got for us? Maybe uh, you you can't top that one for, no, for wow factor, but uh, no, I can't. And and I was going to ask you in, in any of your Zoom hearings. So far, have you said I'm not a cat to the judge? <laughs> I have not. I, I have. Uh, I have two cats, and I've uh, they, they've wandered around, but they've never even made a cameo appearance uh, in any of mine. But uh, that was uh, that was uh, 
Yeah, you know, and I, I think the thing about that as compared to Dr. Green's situation is, uh, you know, here's some here's some lawyer that's that's trying to represent a client, and apparently his kid was playing with the mm-hmm. with the computer or the iPad or whatever before time, and he, you know, he's a technological luddite like I am, you know, many times, and just couldn't figure out how to figure it out. But he's trying. He was trying. He's trying to yeah. do you know the right thing. Right. But uh, you know, there's there's no way you have a traffic uh, hearing in the operating room unless you're trying to do that. You know. Yeah. My my uh, news related law related news article is about the attorney general for the state of South Dakota, who back in September, but it's just now coming out public about what's been going on. But back in September 2020, he was driving and struck something. Uh, He said it was a deer. He goes on home comes back that way the next day and realizes he hit a person and killed that person. And what was interesting were many things are interesting about it to me, but one of them is that the investigators found the person who he hit, that found his reading glasses in the attorney general's car. And yet the AG was insistent that he had hit a deer. Uh, and the, the police said, but the, the guy's, reading glasses were in your car that means his face was in your windshield and yet he thought he hit a deer Um, and then they also had some evidence that the ag said that it was out in the middle of the road and the investigators say no we have proof that your car went off on the shoulder and hit this man walking Um, interestingly that he's only been brought up on misdemeanor charges i can't believe there's not a you know manslaughter charge uh um, but I assume there's going to be a civil wrongful death charge uh, or, or case. I mean, I would certainly uh, believe that that it that deserves a wrongful death civil action, no matter what happens with in the criminal arena with him. But I thought that was very interesting. The attorney general, who is the chief law enforcer of your state, um, kind of pulling these shenanigans with the investigators. And, and it's it's on the uh I've seen a few little bit of the interview, and I noticed that yesterday or sometime this week, uh, his attorney, AG's attorney, moved for a gag order uh, to take all of that stuff off the Internet, and the state apparently didn't oppose it. So there's a gag order now, and I think everything's trying to be removed from the Internet, but that that's probably impossible at this point. I, I, I also uh, also uh, read that uh, they were able to, you know, link with the time of death or whatnot. That uh, and, and his phone records that his uh, he was uh, in all likelihood uh, reading a news article as he Uh-oh. as he went down the highway. Uh, which a uh, couple of lessons there for. Uh, you know, folks out there. One is, you know, if you're if you're on your phone and you have a fatality accident, somebody's going to get your phone records. So uh, it's 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 not a good idea. First, because you don't want to kill somebody, but it's second, uh, not uh, uh, not going to escape notice uh, if you're riding down the road, you know, reading your phone. Uh, the second thing, because I watched some of those uh, those interviews, you know, and. Uh, th- this the the common theme with uh, with uh, what I said about my news article is you have the attorney general going in without a lawyer to talk to these investigators, 
And, uh, you know, they're apparently very good investigators. That's what investigators do is present you with, you know, it's very similar to what lawyers do on cross-examination. And uh, so he was, uh, uh, he, he was pretty quickly hoist on his own petard there. It reminded me of a case I had many, many years ago where I represented a landscape guy and he was backing away from the yard, uh, blowing leaves when he was struck by a car and it was struck by an elderly person. She was in her 80s. She did not stop. It's middle, middle of the day. She did not stop, went on home. And fortunately, my guy lived, although he was severely, severely injured. Um, but his ball cap he wore doing his landscaping, his ball cap was stuck in her windshield. And she went on home and left, came home with his ball cap stuck in the windshield. Uh, she couldn't explain that one. But, yeah, you know. Yeah. Interesting case. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Lester, that's a great, great day talking about settlement and compliance with Medicare regs and ERISA. And, and it's very nice to know there's somebody that's really an expert in it that you can turn to for help uh, when yeah. you when you need it as well. Yeah. So that's all I have. Do you have anything else? I, I don't have anything else. So I guess uh, we'll see you in court. See you soon. in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.